Well, please open up your Bibles now to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. You can find that on page 890 in the chair Bibles around you. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And uh, as we enter into uh, chapter 5, we see that chapter 5 is all one story. Uh, We're not going to look at all of it today. Um, We're just going to focus on on when uh, Jesus heals a lame man on the Sabbath. And then uh, this healing is going to lead to a really shocking controversy uh, with the Jewish religious authorities. uh, And they're going to have an issue here uh, with Jesus doing this healing. All right, so John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that you've given to us today, that you've given this particular passage for us to to study this morning. And so, Lord, we ask that... uh, that you'd help us to, to understand it. Lord, help us to grow in compassion, to be like Jesus and to step into the, uh, the, the lives of suffering people, to bring about your healing, to bring about your restoration, your relief. And we ask also, Lord, that you would help us to see that you are Lord of the Sabbath, that you rule and you reign. May we have a hope for 
for your power, for what you can do, for the relief and the health that you can bring and will ultimately one day bring when you return. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those Jews, uh, they were certainly a buzzkill, weren't they? I mean, what, what happens here, it's miraculous, and, and it's worthy of just the whole city rejoicing for days and days and praising God. But this story, it, it awkwardly jolts, doesn't it? It, it jolts from, uh, from a miracle to a manhunt, from, from seeing God's compassion and mercy to accusations of sin and Sabbath-breaking and even blasphemy. I can't imagine being this lame man. Imagine you know getting a disease at a young age, uh, maybe as a child or a young person, and not being able to walk for 38 years. And then, you know, you're just laying there, and, and then all of a sudden you're mirac- miraculously healed uh, by uh, by a stranger. The the greatest desire of your life, the thing you always hoped for, happens, and and you're you're filled with joy. Uh, and, and jumping up and down, walking—you're just you're, you're in awe and in disbelief. And then all of a sudden, the religious leaders come over to you, and they don't—they don't share in your joy, but instead they accuse you of sin. I, I can't imagine being being in that position and and being just so shocked at uh, at the difference of responses here to what to the miracle that happened so so what's happening here uh, what, what's going on in the heart of, of of these Jewish leaders that made them respond in such a, a cold and heartless way and and then what, why, why does Jesus respond in the way that he does and, and how, why is it that what he said makes the Jews all the more mad at him and then how, how can this passage give us hope hope for today hope for this year and hope for the rest of our lives well, today let's, uh, we're going to unpack this passage with three points. First, we're going to consider this Sabbath healing and God's mercy. We're going to see God's mercy. And then second, we'll consider the Sabbath controversy that ensues from all this and this clash between the rules of men and the rule of Jesus Christ. And then third, we'll, uh, we'll consider our Sabbath hope as we look to what God has for us in the future. So Sabbath healing... Sabbath controversy and Sabbath hope. Let's start by focusing on verses uh, nine, 1 through 9 on this Sabbath day healing. We see in verse 1 that Jesus returned to Jerusalem for a Jewish feast. Uh, the Jewish calendar had a handful of feasts throughout the year that uh, faithful uh, Jews would return to Jerusalem for. The Jewish calendar has um, uh, feasts like, uh, like Passover, uh, Purim, Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, among others. We don't know what uh, what particular feast this was that Jesus was coming back for, but that was the setting uh, for why he came back. Jesus then went to the pool of Bethesda, uh, near the Sheep Gate. So where is this pool? Well, this pool has been found by archaeologists, and, and there's actually two pools uh, right next to each other. The pool... Um, uh, since, since the time of Jesus, uh, a lot's happened around it and over it, on top of it. Um, and so what archaeologists have seen is um, there was a, a Roman temple that was uh, built over this site, plus uh, you have a couple churches that have built, been built on top of these pools since then. 
So today, these pools are not fully exposed, but instead, uh, there's, uh, you, you can see different parts of, of, uh, of the old walls of these, uh, of these pools. Um, the, these pools, they're, they're located just north of the Temple Mount. They're very, very close. Um, and it's by what's known, uh, what has been previously known as the Sheep Gate. Excavation of the site has shown that the two pools, they combine for about a length of a whole football field, uh, which is fairly large, and they're also pretty deep. They're about 20 feet deep, which was deeper than what I was uh, imagining in my mind. The text also speaks of these five roofed colonnades. So what's, what's that? Um, uh, well, a roofed colonnade would be a roof that's supported by pillars, um, and that, that functioned as shade for those who were at the pool. Uh, it mentions five roofed colonnades, and so that would be uh, one for every side going around both of the, uh, the pools, plus then there would be a fifth colonnade going through the middle separating the two pools. Uh, so these colonies are, are a, a much thinner type of structure uh, going around around the whole thing. These pools, uh, they were open to the public, which is one reason why we see a multitude of, of people there. Uh, but these, this isn't just a multitude of any people, right? This is a multitude of sick and disabled people. So that makes us think, well, there's a more significant reason for why they're here than, than oh, you know, hey, let's just go to the public pool. We see here that there was a belief, for sure, by the, this lame man, but probably most likely held by, by the multitudes that were there, uh, that these waters had healing power when they were stirred. So a multitude of people gathered with this hope of healing. And we, we, we see this same type of, cult, uh, this same type of uh, response in our own culture today. Uh, whenever something is said to cure or prevent a disease, People flock to it. They're desperate for it. Even if there's a shred of hope, people will do just about anything to relieve their suffering and to extend their life. We live in a world filled with so much disease and suffering and death. People are desperately looking for any kind of hope for relief and to stave off death as long as possible. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. To, to It's not a bad thing to pursue health and, and to, uh, to live as long uh, as, as possible. Um, uh, but we see that when people are desperate, they, they will move towards uh, any type of, of, of hope, whether it's credible or not. And, um, and we don't know the credibility of, of, of this pool, whether did it actually heal people or not. Um, but uh, we see a multitude is gathered there with, uh, with this hope. And so, uh, as Jesus walked under these, uh, the, the colonnades of the Pool of Bethesda here, uh, he undoubtedly knew that he was surrounded by people who, who were looking for hope and relief from their suffering. They were putting their hope in these waters. I wonder if some people, they were, if they were so fixated on the movements of the water that they didn't even notice Jesus stepping into their midst. Jesus, the great physician. So as Jesus walked among them, he set his eyes on one particular man. A man who had been laying there a long time. A man who had been unable to walk for 38 years because of a disease of some sort. And so Jesus, out of, out of compassion for this particular man, he came to him. 
He approached him. You see, I, th- I think we, we, we know that Jesus, he, he, he didn't shield himself from the sufferings of other people, as we often do. He, he approached suffering. He approached hurting people. He talked to them and he, he healed many of them, even if, even if they didn't believe in him or, or even give any thanks. So let's not shield ourselves from the suffering of this world. Let's courageously step into the lives of suffering people as Jesus did. When we seek to see how, how are people suffering and, and how, 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 can we, how can we help, even, even if you know, we feel like there's not much we can do, when we seek that out, it cultivates within us a Christ-like compassion. I think it also cultivates within us an appropriate longing for the return of Christ. When we see other people suffering, when, when we see the extent and the depth of it, and when we see the difficulties of bringing relief uh, to so many diseases and disorders and, and uh, problems uh, in, in people's lives, I think, I think it begins to cultivate within us this desire to pray for the Lord to come back soon, to restore all things, to, to heal His people. I know that for, for, for myself, uh, that it pushes me in that direction towards praying for the Lord's return when I consider the, the, so many sufferings that are happening in our own congregation. Uh, also, in, uh, for, for me, uh, I you know, had, had, a, had a, one of my best friends growing up. Um, we did youth group together and, and, and so many things, but then in his, in his early college years, uh, his mental health declined and he became diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And then just to see, see that collapse, and, to, and, and it's pushed me to long, to long for Christ to come back, to see him restored, to see so many of you healed and restored. And, uh, and so I think as we, as we step into the lives of people and, and their suffering, it pushes us to... to to, to, to want, for, want Christ to come back and to pray for that fervently. In verse 6, we, we see that Jesus, when he comes to the lame man, he, he asks him a question that just kind of seemingly has an obvious answer to it. He asks him, do you want to be healed? So why did Jesus ask this question? I mean, obviously a man like this would want to be healed, Right? But Jesus, he always has a purpose for why he says what he says and why he does what he does. Uh, John Calvin said that he thinks Jesus asked this question to freshly stir up in the man the desire for healing, but then also to get the attention of those around him who are going to witness this miracle. So I, I think that could be. I also think that Jesus is exposing where this man's hope is at that moment. Listen to the layman's answer to Jesus in verse 7. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. You see, the man answers Jesus' question by showing him that he thinks that Jesus is asking him, Do you want to be healed by this pool? He tells Jesus he can't be healed by the pool. Because he can't get into it, he has no one to help him. He reveals that his hope is, is in perhaps a friend who would help him in or, and that his hope is, is in the pool itself to do the healing. So I believe Jesus intentionally did not ask him, do you want to be healed by me? 
in order to reveal to everyone around him and us where this man's hope was and then for us to see the change in that hope from it going from, from hope in the pool to hope in Christ. And so we need to see that hope, that, that change in hope. We need to see that. We need that hope to become a part of us as well as, as our hope, it, which is fixated on, on, on so many things in this life. We, we need God to, 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 to transition that, to change our focus, our hope, to Him. So where is your hope? What or who are you looking to to solve your problems, to give you relief, to rescue you from your suffering, from, from death? Put your hope fully in the great physician, the conqueror of death, Jesus Christ. We need moments like this where we can just take our eyes off of the, the worldly solutions uh, for our problems, the, the temporary reliefs that, 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 that the things of this world can give us, and, and, and fixate on the Lord Jesus Christ and how he can bring permanent healing and hope and restoration. Now in verses 8 and 9, we see the power of Jesus to heal. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So just by speaking, Jesus was able to instantly heal this man. That's how powerful his word is. I mean, does this kind of remind you of, of, the, of, of God's creation, the creation account in Genesis? God speaks, and by his powerful word, he instantly brings about new creation. That's kind of like what's happening here. The words of Jesus bringing life instantly, restoration, new creation. This healing also reminds me of, of uh, the hymn, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. There's a, a couple verses there that says, He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. I love how that hymn connects the speaking of God to the healing and restoration in so many different ways for his people. When we think of God's word, we, I think we often think of it in terms of how God's word uh, only teaches us, guides us, and corrects us. I think we often forget that God's words can also heal us. There's healing in the Word of God. When everything is dark, when there's nothing left to hope in, God can speak. He can do what no one else can do. He can heal in ways no one else can heal. He can create new life. He can restore. That's the healing power of God's Word. It's kind of like in, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when Aslan at the end, with his very breath, he's able to bring back to life those who were turned into, into stone by the white witch. It's a wonderful picture, his breath bringing life. 
So this man was miraculously healed by Jesus' words. But this man, he didn't even know who Jesus was. Uh, and uh, then Jesus uh, withdrew into the crowd. But in verse 14, we see that Jesus finds this man again in the temple. And says, says in verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What Jesus says here is really, really important. It shows one of the reasons why Jesus healed people in his earthly ministry. I mean, obviously he healed people to give them relief because he was compassionate on them. But Jesus also healed this man and, and, and many others in order to point to a greater healing that is needed. It's a healing from sin. Jesus calls this man to repent from his sins in order to direct him away from something worse happening than paralysis. Jesus is directing him away from the judgment and fires of hell. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, A sick bed is a sorrowful place, but hell is much worse. Jesus came to bring some temporary relief to many through healing. But these temporary healings were meant to give everyone a foretaste of what his glorious reign in heaven would be like with his what, what, what new creation, perfect restoration, and what healing would taste like. And so Jesus healed this man and then he called him to repentance because repentance is the door to complete and permanent healing of our whole self and to an infinitely greater relief from the eternal sufferings in hell. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, uh, he connects these ideas together. He, he quotes Isaiah 53 and he makes the connection between the death of Christ and healing our ultimate sickness of sin. He says, He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. So the death of Christ brings about our healing from sin. And it's through this door of healing from sin that brings about ultimate healing of our whole selves in the, in the new heaven and the new earth. When Jesus heals us of our sin, we die to sin and we live to righteousness. We grow in killing sin and becoming free from its dominion over us. And we, we then begin to live in this, this new way of holiness, of, 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 of growing in our love for what God loves and growing to hate what He hates and, and growing uh, in obedience to His commands and His mission. That's the healing that we need most. How tragic it is that so many people, they, they want the foretaste of the kingdom, but they don't want the kingdom itself. They want the healing of the Son of Righteousness, but not the rule of the Son. They want His mercy and blessing and benefits, but not His holiness and righteousness. 
Is that you? Do you do you seek from God relief from your disease or your disability or your loneliness, your financial stress, relational conflicts? But have you not yet come to Jesus for your greatest healing, the greatest healing that you need from relief from your sins and 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 and, and, and reunion to, uh, to to reconcile you with God? If that's you, then hear the words of Christ here and, and sin no more. Come to Jesus in faith. Receive His healing from your sin so that nothing worse may happen to you. And when you do that, when you come to faith in Christ, you can rest assured that relief from your worldly troubles may come in part in this life. God loves you. He may bring relief in this life. But know that you are promised relief from all of your troubles in the life to come. That is the promise that we have in Christ. Now, it, would, it could seem fitting for this story to, to end right now. We, we've, we've got a happy ending. Uh, the lame man's been healed, points us to faith in Christ and hope in heaven. We can just end right here and everything's happy. But the story doesn't end. Uh, instead, the story blows up. In verse 9, we read that Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath. So now in verses 10 through 18, we're going to see a, a controversy spark between the Jewish religious authorities and Jesus. So start by looking at verses 10 through 16 and see the Jews' response to the Sabbath healing and then how it clashed with their man-made rules. And then we're going to, after that, look at Jesus' response to the Jews. So verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Uh, well, the first thing to notice here is that when this text refers to the Jews, it's specifically referring to the Jewish religious leaders and authorities. We see that these leaders, probably Pharisees, they immediately critique this man for carrying his mat when he had just been healed. They accuse him of Sabbath breaking, breaking the Sabbath commandment that forbade work. Now, if it sounds like a stretch to say that carrying your mat after you've just been healed, that that is uh, work and a violation of the Sabbath commandment, uh, I, I would totally agree with you. The Old Testament law did not forbid what the man was doing here. But according to Jewish rabbinical law, this was a violation of the Sabbath commandment. Rabbinical law had 39 classes of work, and included in the list of prohibited work was carrying something from one place to the next. So Jewish rabbis had taken God's holy Sabbath and uh, holy Sabbath commandment, and they 
they had overdefined and overapplied it. And by doing so, they created their own rules and traditions and burdened the Jewish people. This is a form of legalism. I just want to take a little time here to, to talk about three different forms of legalism that we should all be aware of and, and watchful for. One type of legalism is when someone teaches that your standing before God is determined by your law-keeping. Your standing before God is determined by your law-keeping. So the formula is, you know, if you obey God and avoid sinning, or at least avoid the big sins, you will be justified and saved from your sins. Okay, so this is the first type of legalism. Uh, it's the Galatian heresy that Paul uh, attacked in the book of Galatians. A second type of legalism is when someone teaches that sanctification, your growth in Christ-likeness and holiness, the sanctification comes exclusively or almost entirely by your obedience to God's law, to the commandments of Scripture. The, uh, this type of legalism can be difficult to see, especially at first. Uh, because... Um, because someone might, might may be teaching the commands of Scripture just straight out, straight from the straight from the text. You see it right there for yourself. And the the, the the preacher, the teacher, isn't adding anything to these laws, to these commandments. So it can be difficult to see at first. But but this becomes legalistic teaching if they pound you with the law and how you're disobeying it and you're not doing uh, enough for God. And at the same time, they withhold any reference to the gospel and what Christ has done and the promises of God and how we are to rest in Him by faith. Legal preaching, it, it might sound biblical at first, but it will not sanctify you. You need more than the law for your growth in holiness. Now, I'm not, throwing, I'm not throwing the commandments of God out. I'm not doing that at all. What I'm saying is that more fundamentally, you need the gospel. You need grace. You need love and mercy and identity to know your identity in Christ. You need promises. You need the Holy Spirit. So more fundamentally, we need to start there. And then the commandments of God, the law of God, find their proper place. And that's where, and, and, and then we're able to grow in obedience. So that's the second type of legalism. A third type of legalism is when a teacher imposes man-made rules on your Christian life. So this is the type of legalism that we see here in the Gospel of John that the Jewish leaders are, are guilty of. Uh, man-made rules uh, for the Christian life, they are everywhere today in popular evangelicalism. And we can just talk and just list you know so so many that uh, that you, you can run into but these man-made rules they what they end up doing is they end up infringing on your Christian liberties they they add unnecessary burdens on on uh, those who can't or won't obey they, they give uh, they they can crush true Christians assurance of salvation for when, when, when they disobey. 
They're like, oh man, I, I, can't, I can't do this or that enough. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not obeying. I, I, I must not be a true Christian. And on the flip side, they can give a false sense of assurance to fake Christians who are just really good at obeying the traditions and rules of men. So this legalism is toxic. We must know what God has commanded us and what he hasn't. Where there are areas of, of where God has left it up to Christian liberty or for us to use wisdom within our own, uh, uh, within our own lives to, to be able to discern what is the right thing to do or what is the wrong thing to do. I'm so thankful for the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms, uh, the section specifically on the Ten Commandments, because they're so helpful in concisely instructing us on what God has commanded us for how, for how we are to live. Uh, and, and then by implication from that, uh, we can discern then what ways that he, he hasn't commanded us uh, as well. That helps us to know where God's moral law ends and where then uh, our Christian liberties and where living uh, by wisdom begin. We must not take matters of, of conscience and then bind the consciences of, of another brother or sister. Well, in verse 15, uh, the man who is healed by Jesus he eventually reports back to the Pharisees that it was Jesus who healed him. Then in verse 16, we see that the Jews find not only the healed man guilty of breaking the Sabbath, but they also find Jesus guilty as well. Evidently, they thought that healing a man on the Sabbath was a sin. And this uh, violation of their man-made Sabbath laws, that became just fuel for their hatred of Jesus and their persecution of him. Now, I... I I, you know, I, I doubt that in any of the rabbinical laws that, that there was any law saying that healing somebody on the Sabbath was work. Uh, they, 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 nobody would predict uh, somebody healing another person. So they, uh, I, I, think they're, I think they're just making it up on the spot that what Jesus did uh, was a Sabbath violation. So how did Jesus respond to these accusations? Read with me verses 17 and 18. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also even but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. <clears throat> so this story unexpectedly blows up a second time. Jesus' response to the Jews gave them an even greater reason to try to kill him than his supposed Sabbath violation. Jesus was claiming equality with God. I mean, that Sabbath violation was bad, but to claim equality with God was blasphemy. Now, what did, what did Jesus mean when he said, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus knew that the Jews taught that God worked on the Sabbath. So if you think about it, uh, every, every moment of every day, including on, including on the Sabbath day, God is upholding all of creation. He's working His providence with all of His creatures. God doesn't take a break from doing His work when, when the Sabbath rolls around. Uh, and so they, they taught that only God had the right 
to work on the Sabbath. And so for Jesus to claim that God was his father and that he was working on the Sabbath in conjunction with his father, that was to claim that he had the same privilege as God to work on the Sabbath. That would mean that Jesus was making himself equal with God. Because, so... You know, and this is what we see. We see Jesus in his ministry do this. He, when, when the Father tells him to do something, he does it. Jesus didn't do anything without the Father telling him to do it. He was perfectly obedient to his Father. And so, so with the healing of this lame man, God the Father had compassion on this lame man. And so, and so he empowered Jesus to to. to, to to come to this to come to this man and to speak and, and, and to heal to heal this man. So the Father and the Son, they work hand in hand, and Jesus accomplishes the Father's work. In other parts of the Gospels, when Sabbath controversy came up, Jesus said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Just as God the Father is ruling over all of creation, even on the Sabbath day, Jesus is ruling as well. And so the the rules of man had no authority over the rule of Christ as Lord of the Sabbath. He could heal on the Sabbath because it belonged to him. Now Jesus, he's not saying that he could disobey the Sabbath commandment. It's not at all what he's saying. He's saying something far more profound, that he owned the Sabbath and that all rest is found in him. That when he did something on the Sabbath, it was in line with the Sabbath. He is bringing Sabbath rest. That his healing of the lame man, that is bringing rest and relief and and, and, and it's encouraging worship. That is the essence of the Sabbath. So, brothers and sisters, the Lord of the Sabbath, He will one day return and establish His forever Sabbath, His forever rest and shalom in His kingdom of heaven. And that's our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope. And this is the hope. We also see this hope in, in, the, in the book of 1 Peter. The apostle uh, Peter directs our hearts uh, so well here. He says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will, be, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully, all of your hope. Put it all there, all of the hopes that we have in this life. Point them, direct them, all of them towards the grace, the blessings the life that Christ is going to bring to you when He comes back. All of our hopes for today and tomorrow, they should just pale in comparison to our greatest hope of Christ's return. We should hope for that return to be soon. Long for for that day when He pours out His grace, the riches of His grace on us. His grace would be things like healing, perfect healing and restoration. Reconciliation between people and between full, that full reconciliation with God, seeing Him face to face, the life, 
true life, freedom from, from all of our enemies, from sin, holiness, unity, peace, so much more. This is the rest that Christ will bring for all of His people. This is our greatest hope. This is the ultimate hope of all of our hopes. So brothers and sisters, there's many of you here today, many within our congregation that can't be here today, that that suffer so, so, so much with diseases and disabilities, with mental health, health challenges. Those people are coming to mind right now for you, I hope. You know, some of these people, some some people have you know visible challenges that everyone can see, but for many people, they're, they're, there's invisible challenges that only a few people know about. And it's good for us as a congregation to to pray for one another that God might bring healing and restoration and relief. It's not wrong to 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 pursue relief through through medical means and 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 uh, um, and and. And, and to help one another to uh, uh, to, to bring relief in, 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 the, in all these different ways. But sometimes, you know, sometimes God will give relief in this life. And sometimes it's only in part. And sometimes God only answers these, these deep longing prayers of ours. He, he, he says, I'm going to fulfill that when I come back. I'm going to fulfill that when you come in heaven. So whether God answers those prayers for us today, right now, or not, let's remember that He loves us. He's compassionate and merciful. His mercy knows no bounds. And let's let's remember that we have a sure hope that nobody can take away from us. A hope that God will one day completely heal us. Completely heal our, our loved ones who have faith in Christ. And He will completely do a complete and permanent healing, body, mind, and soul, and give us full rest with Him in heaven. By His wounds, we have been healed and will one day be fully and forever healed. Let's pray now with that hope. Lord Jesus, we, we, we thank you so much for this hope that we have. You are the Lord of the Sabbath. Rest is found in you. Peace is found in you. By your wounds, we have been healed. And we have a hope of a future healing. A healing that no one can take away from us. We have hope of glorified bodies that will never know sickness, never know disability. We praise you for that hope that we have. Help us, Lord, to grow in compassion for those who suffer, for those within our congregation, for those outside of our congregation. Help us to step into the lives of those who suffer, that we might provide relief, that we might provide a, 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 loving, a, a, a loving and listening ear, someone who can, who can hear about the challenges Help us, Lord, to move toward people 
who are suffering and not away. Grow within us, Lord, compassionate hearts. Grow within us, Lord, a longing for your return, for that return to be soon. There's so much suffering in this world, Lord. We want it to be done. Please come back soon, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.